We're in Matthew 1 this morning, just one verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That, that verse in the Greek, Biblos Genesis is how it begins. Two words when it says the book of the genealogy. It's talking about a Bible, a story, a book of origins, obviously the origins of Jesus Christ, but that language should sound familiar. It is, it is Matthew sort of taking us back and reminding us of the beginning of the origins of creation. Of in the beginning, there was God who created the heavens and the earth. When God formed man from the dust of the ground, the creator had a purpose, and that was to bring glory to himself by causing us to reflect his image, by creating us in his image that we might then glorify him. Isaiah 43, 7, God says he created man for his glory. In Genesis 1, we know that God delegates to man this responsibility to rule over the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals and every living creature on the earth, not, not because we are gods and are given sort of special powers over creation, but rather because we are made in, in the image of our creator and ruler God. He is transcendent and all-powerful, and, and we are not, but we are able to reflect back his image amongst all of creation. We have the unique opportunity to glorify God by echoing back our worship of him, by following him and loving him and drawing near to him and honoring him. Not because God needs any of those things. Did he make us in this way that we are made in his image and reflect back his glory? But it is because in those things we find our greatest joy and satisfaction in being made in his image and reflecting back to him who he is and his greatness. The psalmist's echo this in, in, in songs of joyful celebration and even in the, the, the more sadder songs, if you will, of lament when they are contemplating their circumstances. Over and over again, they, they speak of this nearness to God, of this drawing close to him, of communing with him, of God being a, a shield, a refuge, a, a, a dwelling place, one whom we are with, who's whose house we long to enter, whose presence we long to be in. The psalmist in, in Psalm 84 reflects this wonderfully, just some of the verses from out of Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a son and shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, O Lord of hosts. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. The psalmist just putting voice to what should be our own heart desire to long to be with him, to draw near to him, to find that in him is our greatest satisfaction and pleasure, because that is what we were made for, to have communion with the living God, to dwell in his presence and to seek and then reflect back his glory. 
Unfortunately, we know the Bible also describes the stark contrast between divine design and the heart of man and man's sinful desire for self to try to be our own rulers, to, to covet our own praise, to, to long to be self-sufficient, not necessarily depend on God, rather than drawing near to him in, in dependent worship, our, our place of maximum joy and satisfaction. We so often want to, to, to find joy and happiness in things that he has made himself. That stubborn rebellion is what plunged humanity into the, the misery of the fall. Adam and Eve reject the excellence of God, the, the perfection of fellowship with him. God walks with them in the garden, and they, they experience that kind of nearness. And yet the desire ultimately is to, to, to rule self, to know for self, to do for self. And, and sin and shame now enter in so that when God enters the garden, rather than drawing near to him, they run from him and they hide from him out of guilt. And that perfection of God dwelling among men is shattered. The idea, says one commentator, the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, is there in the biblical account from the very beginning. The idea that we would dwell with God, that we would have communion with God. Is what is described in the Garden of Eden, but sin divides and destroys and shatters so that the sound of God walking in the garden that, that once signaled fellowship and communion with the Creator instead means fear and judgment. We see the beauty of the glory of the Creator, and yet because of sin, it is now the, the glare of His holiness. Man sought to run away, and God banishes man from that garden because he is not allowed access anymore to the tree of life. Because to allow man to be in that case, would, in that situation, would be to allow him to have access to, to ongoing experience of being separated from God, the ongoing um, life apart from him and, and being separated from God. And so that alienation is, is what needs to be met. We uh, not first and foremost need a path back to the tree of life. What we ultimately need is something that resolves God's wrath, that satisfies his right judgment against our sin, something that brings peace, that allows us to return to fellowship with him, sweet communion with God. God promises that all the way back in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve, the one who tempted Adam and Eve would ultimately be crushed. The one who tempts them towards sin and death would be crushed. The, the one would be crushed by a, a, an heir to Adam and Eve. There would be a son who would come, who would incur a painful blow, but who would be God with us, who would be the one that would bring us back to fellowship with our God. And that's where Matthew now comes in and introduces us to that one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I just want to look at this one verse this morning. How the coming of, of Jesus Christ 
makes the way for man to have fellowship with God, to restore the communion that has been shattered. The Gospel of Matthew has these strong connections back to the Old Testament promises. It is first in chronology in the New Testament, probably so because of its relation to um, Old Testament promises of God making of a Messiah, the, the constant references to the Old Testament, often described as the Gospel to the Jewish people, but we know that it is more than that. It is clear that from the beginning in verse Verse 1, Matthew is declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. And in fact, in this verse, verse 1, there are four descriptions. I just want to summarize with, with this sentence. Matthew introduces a promised Savior who was anointed and empowered by God to be the mighty servant king and to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So with this, Matthew introduces us now to Jesus, and his first description is that word, Jesus. Common name, used 150 times by Matthew compared to only 17 for Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. The one is a name, the other is a, is a title if we were going to try to be technical about it. But throughout the Gospels, it is surprisingly rare to see Jesus called Jesus Christ. He is primarily seen to us as Jesus in the Gospels. It is when we get to Acts and the Epistles that the name Jesus Christ becomes the more common way to identify the Son of God. Here he is, first, Jesus, Savior. He will... Remind us of that, Matthew will, down in verse 21, when he records the angel speaking to Joseph in verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the, the Greek form of Joshua, Yeshua, the, the Lord saves, salvation has come. The angel is emphatic when he says that to Joseph in, in Matthew 121, God is naming this child, you will call him Jesus, because he is a savior. The verse echoes back to, to Psalm 103, verse 8, where it speaks of the steadfast love and plentiful redemption of the Lord, and he will redeem Israel from its iniquities. Saving from sin is the defining element. He's not savior in a generic sense. Matthew 121 is what defines it for us. He is saving from sin. We can think of a lot of things from which man would feel a need to be saved, disease, cruelty, violence, Certainly at that moment in history, the, the widespread hope for being saved from the tyranny of Rome, being rescued from that, send a savior to rescue us. But God made it clear from the beginning, Jesus would be a savior who would rescue us from sin. Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to rescue man from the misery of sin and, and from the judgment of God that we deserve for our rebellion. The virus of COVID is nothing compared to the virus of sin because sin infects everyone. Sin 
captures everyone and condemns all to the judgment of death because we have been created by a holy God. We have all defied him. We have all sinned against him and we all stand judged before him. Romans 3 paints that, that situation in the bleakest of terms. There is none righteous. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Um, no one naturally is at peace with God because ultimately, as he goes on and says in Romans 3, no one fears the true and living God. That's the curse of sin. We are blindly hostile to God and slaves to self, so much so that we, we think as unbelievers that, that the good we do is somehow worthy of merit in some way, when in fact, even Romans 3 makes clear that when we do that good as an unbeliever, we're judging by our own standards of goodness, not God's, doing it for our own motivations and our own pleasure, not for the pleasure of the one who made us. We need a savior. Jesus came to rescue us from the blindness and bondage to sin. As Peter speaks to the Jews in the book of Acts chapter 4, and he's talking to those Jewish religious leaders, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is first the Savior. But there's something else Matthew reveals here, that he's writing about Jesus Christ, the word Christ, Christos in the Greek, the title means the anointed one. Jewish readers would have understood that he is speaking now of the Messiah, the one who is the chosen one by God, who is sent very specifically. If you look down at verse 16, it speaks of Jesus who is called Christ in, in Matthew 1:16, verse 17, a verse later, Jesus is simply identified as the Christ. Jesus, the Savior, is God's anointed one. And by being the Christ, that now says he has been chosen, commissioned, if you will, and then empowered for a particular task to be that Messiah, that, that chosen one. Again, in terms of what we've just been talking about, the, 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 the need that we have of a Savior, the fact that Jesus is the Christ demonstrates that he is the Savior empowered and chosen by God, which reinforces the fact that we are helpless when it comes to this salvation. We are unable to save ourselves. There must be a, a one sent who is the Christ, who is able to rescue us. We are dead in sin. God has sent a Savior to rescue us from the judgment we deserve. Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The word for weak is lacking ability. We, we don't have the wherewithal in ourselves to rescue ourselves. My, my two youngest children are sons, ages 22 and 24, and both of them live eight hours away. And that has never been more real to me than this past year when both of them were gone and, and tasks came up around the house that I used to rely on my young men to do or to at least help me with. And now I have to try to figure out how to do these things, being proud and not asking for help like I should from someone else. But I miss that. I, I, I feel more of that sense of weakness. It showed me that there's things that I am unable to do without having them nearby. Well, in a far greater way, sinful man is unable to remove on his own God's wrath. The, the essence of Christ is one who is called, chosen, empowered to do that work of rescuing us. Romans 8, that begins, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, goes on to explain that, that 
Prior to the salvation of Christ, we were judged guilty. It says in Romans 8, by the law of sin and death. A law is a decree. It is God's established decree that man's sin subjects him to the penalty of death. And there is no appeal that we can give, no work that we can do to try to overturn that. And so Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's saying God sent his son. God sent the Christ anointed to come in the flesh, to bear our sins in his flesh, to do what we cannot do, what the law cannot do. And that is to bring a satisfaction of God's judgment and his wrath. And so instead of experiencing the just condemnation of our sin, Jesus bears it in himself. The Christ suffers in our place that we might be able to have his righteousness. And Matthew goes on. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. By coming with God's anointing and power as the Messiah, what's now clear is that this Savior sent from God is also coming as a king, in particular a king in the line of David. There were 400 years from the close of the Old Testament until the coming of Jesus Christ. We often think of those as 400 silent years. There is no revelation from God. There is no written revelation that is given. The prophets have become quiet. Scripture is not written, but there were still Jewish religious writings being penned during that period that, that help us to see the mood and to see what people were anticipating and thinking on. One such writing from the century just before Jesus came from roughly 80 to 40 BC, somewhere in that period, was called the Psalms of the Pharisees or the Psalms of Solomon, different names for what is an apocryphal book, but they were written at a time while Rome is, is having a very tyrannical rule over Israel, and just a portion of the 17th Psalm of Solomon goes like this, Behold, O Lord, and raise up unto them their king, the son of David, in the time which you, O God, knows, that he may reign over Israel, thy servant, and gird him with strength, that he may break in pieces them that rule unjustly, purge Jerusalem from the heathen that trample her down to destroy her. Again, this is not God's word, even though it has that feel to us. This is what we would call an apocryphal book, a so-called hidden work. But, but there are echoes of that kind of language, even similar language. We can go back to Isaiah and the other prophets and find sort of a, a, a similar expectation and, and sentiment in the prophets that there would come a ruler from the Lord who would be powerful, who would defeat all of God's enemies, and who will rule over all of creation, and that will happen when Jesus returns. That is what we anticipate, what we look forward to in the second coming of Christ is, is his rule. One of the great messianic psalms is Psalm 2. Also describes this Lord's anointed one, this son who comes with power, who, who cannot be thwarted when he comes. In fact, in Psalm 2 verse 4, it speaks of God on his throne laughing at the, the rulers of the nations who try to conspire against God's anointed as if they can somehow defeat him because ultimately God says he will take the nations of the earth and he will make them the possession of his son, it says in Psalm 2. But again, 
This is all what we are looking forward to in the return of Jesus Christ, but it's all very much that Psalm of Solomon, written 40, 50 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, gives us just a sense of what that anticipation is, that, that strong sense that the son of David must come, the line of David that ended when the Jews were taken away into Babylon and the throne was stopped at that point, six centuries roughly before Christ. There's still this sense that God will send a son of David who will be a ruler, and they in particular expect him to overthrow Roman bondage. They believe that this king, this king would come and, and, and would stop the occupation of, of Jerusalem and would throw out and purge it from the enemies, which is, again, partly why there is some degree of confusion when Jesus comes. Jesus of Nazareth was not preaching the purging of Jerusalem or the overthrow of Rome. He was preaching the need to be saved from your sins, the need to repent and believe in him. And he's doing miracles, but with meekness and humility. It's interesting that this, this title, Son of David, would, would picture to us a king we think of David, we think of a powerful king who rules, who has great military victories. But there's another aspect to this title, Son of David, as it gets used repeatedly in the Gospel of Matthew. Nine times Jesus is called the Son of David in Matthew's Gospel. There's here, um, by the way, only three times in Mark, twice in Luke. John doesn't use it at all. So it's not a, not a, a major term except here, Matthew, as he's speaking to his audience, uses the Son of David. So there's this reference in chapter 1. There's another in chapter 22 that's not so much referring as a title to Jesus. It's Jesus questioning the Pharisees and saying to them, well, whose son will this anointed one be when he comes? And, and they have no choice but to answer, well, of course, he will be a son of David. But they are, they are only stubbornly answering that and not trying to ascribe it to Jesus. Two of the other times when Matthew uses son of David, it's the crowds on, on that, what we would call Palm Sunday, shouting, Hosanna, son of David. But the other five times that we see son of David referenced in Matthew's gospel are all related to Jesus either healing people or, or casting out demons, Jesus caring for those who are broken, Jesus bringing healing and deliverance. The title, Son of David, in Matthew is, is more often than not tied to Jesus' mercy, to the characteristic of one who has come to heal and to restore. In Matthew 9, 27, two blind men followed Jesus, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. Matthew 12, 23, he heals a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, and the people standing around say, Can this be the Son of David? Again, the, the mind tends to go with David to military victories and conquests, and yet it's healing and deliverance that people say, could this be that king, that son of David? Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And then the last reference is in Matthew 20. 30 and 31, twice in this passage, Jesus is leaving the city of Jericho. It describes two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard Jesus was passing by, it says they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
There were clearly, as we see in the Gospels, Jews who came to believe in Jesus as Savior, who began to understand him as Messiah, and who now are seeing him as this long-awaited son in the line of David as this king. But right alongside this is an awareness that he is a merciful king. That he is not like one of the kings that the world was used to. He's not like the emperor in Rome. He's not like King Herod over that, that region of Judea. This is a different king. This is a servant king who brings healing and hope. This is the, the king who, when he introduces himself in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, says that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor and sight to the blind and freedom to the captives and liberty to those who are oppressed. That name, Son of David, certainly has in it the, the meaning of one who rules and who reigns on the throne. And we will see that when Jesus returns in power and, and he is the great and conquering king. But there is also in that, there's also in that understanding of Son of David something that, that echoes back to David and what distinguished even David as a king in his day, and that was his, his humility and his desire to first and foremost be known as a servant of God. David repeatedly, read through the Psalms, and you see David constantly referring to himself as the Lord's servant. That's not the language that kings on thrones use. It's the same word for slave. I am a slave of yours. Kings don't talk that way. David repeatedly refers to himself. Psalm 18, Psalm 36, both begin a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Gladly, he calls himself God's servant. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Hide not your face from your servant, your, your slave, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. That's just, that's three examples of, of many of the great King David who believed that his highest title, his highest calling would be to be a servant, a slave of God. And, and that's what I think we see carried over when we see this title here. David, we know the story began as a, as a shepherd boy, called by God to be king over Israel. And even then in his calling, Saul is on the throne. And what does David do? He keeps himself in humble submission to King Saul. Even when Saul is trying to take David's life, David is still striving to be in submission to God's anointed one who is on the throne at that point. At one time during his rule as king, David acts arrogantly without direction from God to take a census of the military, as, as, if, as if in that moment in David's mind, his strength would lie in his numbers of troops instead of resting in God. And so he numbers them. And 2 Samuel 24, 10 says, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Don't want to elevate David because what's in David is God's grace at work. But he is foreshadowing something for us because in David, this, this humble acknowledgement of sin, this, this recognition of God's grace in him that, that makes him to be a servant king foreshadows the perfect servant king who would come and would display power, raising the dead and calming the storm and 
feeding the thousands and doing things that only God could do, casting out demons, preaching with unrivaled conviction. And yet this great Messiah King teaches his disciple the profound lesson that you must be a servant. You must follow after my example. Whoever would be great, Matthew 20, 26, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of David. Matthew introduces us to him here. He will continue to show us that the Son of David was realized as one who, who would come with power, but who would come with healing to restore, to rescue his people, and to show them mercy as a servant king. The last title Matthew uses, Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. So for Jesus to be a son of David, he had to be a son of Abraham. God promised great blessing to Abraham, not the least of which in Genesis 22 was that Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. You will not be able to count them. It'll be like grains of sand on the beach. That, that's how numerous your, your descendants will be. In the New Testament, we see Abraham as the, the prototype of salvation by faith. He believed God. He offers up Isaac. He, he trusts in God's promises, and it is credited to him as righteousness. And, and for the Jewish people, Abraham was, was legacy material, the founding father. If there was a Mount Rushmore in that day, there would no doubt, we know three of them for certain, Moses, David, and Abraham as the one that they looked to, as the one they descended from, as the one who they claimed as, as father, Abraham. But there's something else crucial that we know about Abraham, right? He is called from out of a pagan nation. Before there ever was a Jewish nation, Abraham was a, was a Gentile living in a city called Ur and called by God to be the, the head, the forerunner of God's covenant people. And it's done by sovereign choice. God acts to, to take this Gentile unbeliever and to, to rescue him. When God calls him, it was not simply then to be the patriarch of one nation, Genesis 12, verse 2, God said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. He will reiterate that again after Abraham's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. God says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The gospel of Matthew begins here with the origins of Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of David. The Savior who has come as the Messiah to the Jewish people, sent and anointed and empowered by God to rescue sinners, to be their long-awaited servant king. But Matthew's gospel is not exclusive in this. It is not saying to the Jewish people alone, here is your Savior, but rather he is beginning here with something where he will end with this promised savior who is in the line of one who was promised to be a blessing to all the nations will at the end of his ministry say that you are to go amongst all the nations of the earth. You are to make disciples of all the nations. Jesus would dwell among men to open the way to God and Matthew's gospel that starts here ends with Jesus commanding disciples of all nations. 
the good news that God is with us, that we can have eternal fellowship with our Creator, that we can read Psalm 84 as the sons of Korah first penned it, longing to be in his house and in his dwelling place, that we can now read that as well and know that we can have eternal fellowship with God. We can long to be in his presence and to dwell in his house. It was not restricted to one ethnic group, one nation. The coming of Jesus is good news of great joy for all people we see in Luke's gospel, a Savior whose Christ the Lord has been born. In Genesis, when man is plunged into the darkness and death of sin, God promised a Savior. And he anoints and empowers this Messiah, this one Jesus, to come and to be a mighty servant king, to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. God with us. We in this troubled time in which we live, in the, the bitterness of, of man's evil and the world that causes us to, to long for something better, are reminded in Matthew 1.1 that there is a Savior. There is an empowered, anointed Messiah who has come as King to offer blessing to all, who will turn to Him, who will believe in Him, who will turn from their sin and repent so that we might be his people and the sheep of his pasture, so that, we, so that we might be ambassadors of that king and go out to those nations and proclaim to them the good news of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of great joy that we celebrate this time of year. Thank you for the spreading far and wide of this news so that this morning, even as we are here in Lorton meeting, worshiping, as, as brothers and sisters are joining us online and worshiping, that there are local churches all over this region, all over this country, all around this world. We're believers of every tongue and tribe and people have been called by your grace to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who are worshiping him as Jesus, the Savior, as the anointed and empowered one, who is our king, who is our source of blessing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, for coming from out of the majesty of heaven and coming amongst man to experience rejection and hardship and man's worst cruelty, and then to bear the wrath for our sin, to take in your flesh our rebellion and our disobedience and our sinful thoughts and words and actions so that you might endure in your flesh the punishment that we so rightly deserve for what we have done. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being this, this king who's come to heal a broken people. Lord, if there's anyone listening this morning who is not trusting alone in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, for eternal salvation, please, we pray, draw them to yourself. Cause them to see the truth as you did with Abraham to the, the great patriarch as you have done for person after person in this room who can give testimony. You have, in your sovereign, gracious kindness, 
called us out of darkness to see the light of the coming of the glory of the Son of God. We pray, Lord, that you would make us to be instruments of this good news. And as we go out into this new week, that we would spread to others the good news of great joy, that there is a Savior who should be for all the people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.